Welcome back to the Lou Perez podcast. My name is Lou Perez, and I'm happy to report that right now you can order my book. That's right. I wrote a book. It's called That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore on the Death and Rebirth of Comedy. Follow the link in the description or head over to Amazon and search for Lou Perez. That joke isn't funny anymore. If you want other options on how you can buy my book, please sign up for my newsletter at theluperez.com. You could also join my community at theluperez.locals.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you could leave a five-star review, that would be amazing. Whether you're a long-time listener or first-time, five-star reviews are lovely. If you're looking for other ways you can support me, you could do so by supporting my sponsors. If you're into CBD products, please check out PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Use promo code Lou to get 25% off purchases over $75. And if you like cold brew, check out Black Organic Cold Brew at www.blvckbrew.com and use promo code Lou for free shipping. All right, let's go. I'm very happy to be joined by my next guest. She is the owner and booker of the Creek in the Cave Comedy Club in Austin, Texas. Please give it up for Rebecca Trent. I always say please give it up as if there's actually a live audience here, but <laughs> we are. There is not a live You're audience. Very much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wanted. Well, you know, I wanted to start off um, by uh, just letting people know that uh, the Creek in the Cave used to be in Queens. It used to be in, in Long Island City, and one of my biggest comedy regrets is um, I lived in L.A. That's not the regret. I, li- I was in L.A. for like. Are you sure? <laughs> I was there for like four or five years. And I think it was when I was in L.A. I think that's when you guys opened in Queens. And then when I moved back to New York, I really regret not spending more time at the Creek in the Cave, like not coming yeah. down because of uh, uh I was in what well, I was in Brooklyn. You guys were on a weird subway line. Um, and I don't know, I don't know where I was going. I don't know where I was getting up uh, at that time. But but one of my regrets is that uh, you know, I wasn't able to uh, you know, to be part of the the fun and the community that you built over there. And then um you went and moved it even farther away uh to uh to Austin. But um yeah, maybe maybe we could uh, we could just start with um you know how you came about uh came about to bring about, you know, the Creek in the Cave to begin with. Oh, uh, all right. Uh, So, yeah, the Creek uh, was a place where I did a, I did um, performances at um, uh, through a a group called the Queens Players, which still exists. Um, and or maybe the Queens players don't exist, but they're now called the secret theater. I'm not exactly sure, but they, there is still an entity run by Richard Massa out in, uh, in Queens. Uh, and, uh, they rehearsed out of that space and did performances out of the space. I became, uh, involved with the theater company. We started directing this really incredible show called Lysistrata Revenging the Bush, which was a musical, um, that, um, you have to go further. You have to go deeper than that. I mean, with a, with a title like that, what was happening? On it? Um, it was a musical, uh, that was basically like an anti-war piece where, um, like Lysistrata, the Greek, uh, play women, uh, refused to have sex in order to ah. end the war. 
Um, and this one had, um, instead of like the goddess coming out, the all-knowing goddess, it was Oprah. And um, Billy Staples, actually, who used to be on the Run and Fed show years ago, he, uh, he wrote a song for it. And um, we had uh, the entrances like, on the wing side were these giant foam vaginas with um, this like crazy like hairy yarn that looked like pubic hair. And um, there was a giant eight foot long ramp uh, that ended in the head of a dick. And at the end of the whole show, it shot white confetti out over everybody. It was one of the coolest things I've ever done. It was so much fun. Uh, so many amazing people were involved with it. Uh, it, was just, it was really cool. It was a really great experience. Um, so we were doing that. And while we were doing that, sometimes the bartenders just wouldn't show up. But we used to <laughs> hang out and drink afterwards. So we would go downstairs and we would drink. And I would just be like stuff that was in cans or bottles or whatever. And we would leave the money on the bar. And a couple of weeks go by and finally somebody's like, what's all this money being left on the bar? And we told them and then they were like, you want a job? So I started working there. And then I became the manager of the bar because uh, nobody was doing it, <clears throat> basically. And then um, and then uh, the fellows that owned the place didn't want to own it anymore. They wanted to sell it. And I didn't really like the folks that were looking around to, to, to do it. So I basically bought myself a job, did some... Mm music in there for a little while because um, that's what they were doing before and it was destroying the neighborhood and the people that were living above me were going to start sending me death threats like any second now so we stopped doing music and we did a little bit of theater and that felt silly because Broadway's right there and it's like why, mm -hmm. why are you doing like community theater in a place where there's Broadway it just seems weird yeah at the begin at the, the beginning of the origin story, you know, you guys, you know, leaving money on the bar because the bartenders weren't showing up. I think it, I, I think it really highlights one of the one of the problems for artists, where it's like, you know, there's so many artists out there or theaters that have absolutely like no like like just the bare minimum of like business acumen. Like you got to show up. You should be collecting money, and that's how you're going to keep your shit going. You know, it's. Uh, so just even like, like you're you're automatically like so many steps ahead if you're just able to just show up and do right. uh, and do your job. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so uh, we just uh, and I, I had when uh, so we I talked to a couple of um, people to a couple of people who wanted to like buy in, and so I had two business partners, but um, we bought the place in August of '06. And um, then by December of 07, um, those business partners were no longer involved. I'd bought them out, and it was it, we were just doing full-time comedy. And um, and we uh, switched over to comedy because theater felt silly and because comedians, <laughs> particularly at the time, and I, I, still, I still believe that this is true now, though um, I, I don't mean this in a condescending way, but there's, there's no, like, advocacy for comedians there's no sort of like centered understanding that comedians are artists there's no retirement plan there's no hr department there's no mm -hmm. like stuff that like you know even sculptors and like you know the, the the screen actors guild like there's so many different things that exist to protect different artists in different walks of life but there is no such thing to protect comedians and um I think that part of that is because comedians historically have experienced um, 
um, less community than the average artists' communities do. Um, and, you know, it's, just, it's a singular art form in a lot of ways. I mean, of course, we have writers' rooms and we have to collaborate with people all the time, but um, I think that I think that by and large, sort of like the, the myth is that you don't need community. You just need yourself to do comedy, which it is kind of true, but it's a little bit easier to live your life when you have community and stuff. And it felt anyway, like that was a thing that was needed. And, uh, so, um, so I started sort of like pointing my efforts towards that, um, in general and just sort of making the programming be that. And it just was a better fit and it was a better time. And it was definitely yeah. way hang than hanging out with actors yeah i found i i started off in um improv and sketch comedy uh before i before i ever did stand up like it took it took me like probably i don't know five or more years of already performing like on stage before i had the nerve to even try stand up and i i remember when i was you know starting stand up or you know hosting mics or hosting shows i always brought like kind of that performance energy that i had with sketch and improv which seemed like so different than like you know the dudes hanging out just like with their notes and the, with their nose and their notepads you know kind of just waiting to get the hell out of there you know to move on to another gig but i know yeah i definitely uh yeah i definitely hear you um with that and when it comes to like you know creating that community and like you know fostering that um i mean you had, you had so many comics that that you know kind of came up and and used your you know, your stage as a, you know, a jumping off point for their, you know, for their careers for sure. Yeah, it was a, uh, it was a really incredible experience. Mm-hmm. Hoping to have the same one down here in Austin. Yeah. What, um, what prompted the move? I mean, obviously the pandemic. Yeah. 100%. Pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, um, if, uh, if, if you, you know, I like, kind of like looking, looking back, like what were some of the, you know, some of the huge obstacles that were, you know, sort of in your way when it came to, you know, keeping a, a business afloat during that time. Are you joking? I mean, no, no, no. I'm, 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 I'm like leading the, I'm leading the, uh, the witness, uh, because I, you know, I, I, I know the litany of stuff, but this is the, this is the first time I've, I've I think I've spoken yeah. to somebody who was a business owner at that time. It was kind of a nightmare. My, um, my, my staff sort of very quickly, realized that it was going to um, be more lucrative for them to start doing deliveries because everything went to delivery mm-hmm. groceries, every like a hundred percent of the time it was delivery for quite a while during the beginning of the pandemic when they were talking about, um, was it crush the wave or whatever? Uh, one, um, whatever, whatever week that was. Yeah. Uh, no, it wasn't a week. My friends, the New York, month, like, the month, seven yeah. weeks. Um, so, uh, so we lost our kitchen staff and I, I I mean, I lost my kitchen staff. Um, I was down to one employee, um, and she and I, she ran the kitchen, um, and cooked. She was the head bartender at the time. She ran the kitchen and cooked, did a brilliant job. Um, and I, uh, was the person who answered the phone, took the orders, answered seamless, uh, did the deliveries, um, so you guys had a good, um, I, I had your Mexican, Mexican food. That was the, the main style Mexican. Yeah. Really good. Yeah. It was really good. Uh, yeah. We had to limit the menu, you know, after a while. Cause there was, I mean, there were some times where there was just food that we couldn't get mm-hmm. the lines to get into restaurant depot. Like at one point 
I never experienced this personally, but I was told that the lines were up to like four or five, six hours for people to get in. Um, and uh, because they were limiting the amount of people that were allowed to go in and shop and um, they were spraying down the food. Like it, it was, a, it was kind of, it was, a, it was crazy. It was a, it was, it was pretty bananas. Um, and it, it was impossible for us to keep, make ends meet because I was still having to pay a hundred percent of the rent and the insurance and all mm-hmm. of that stuff. Um, the electricity was set for, um, an average. And, uh, so my electricity was something like $2,500 a month. I got the check back at the end of everything once I closed the account, but, and they had to write me a check for like seven grand, but they were tying that money up. You know what I mean? Mm, and it was, right. it was those kinds of things that were happening all the way around. And then on top of it, once I did start, I figured out something, um, and really it wasn't me. It was a uh, comedian, Michael Che hit me up and asked me if I wanted to, or if I, if I could find a place to do a thing. And I found a place to do a thing and the thing got done. And then the governor, I think like two months later or whatever, said that it was illegal for us to do um, comedy specifically outside even. So we couldn't even do comedy outdoors. It was illegal. And so um, the um, places that I was working with were like legit spots. It wasn't like we were doing like guerrilla comedy. Like we were, we were in places that had like insurance policies and that like, you know, community board, community leaders, like people that were like running nonprofits and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I, we couldn't put those businesses in jeopardy. Those businesses had relationships with, you know, the, the, you know, those offices. So <laughs> at the end of the day, um, basically comedy was specifically singled out. It was put on a chopping block and that kind of entertainment was not welcome in the city. And, uh, it wasn't clear how long that was going to last. And in light of that, what we did, um, or what I did was I, I asked a friend of mine if, if they would, if they were interested in doing like one last thing Mm. and we created, like a really cool looking comedy special that had some really amazing names in it. Like, uh, let's see. Uh, we had Janine Garofalo, Rojo Perez, Tone Bell, the Lucas brothers, Chris Gethard, Mike Kaplan, Nori Davis, Sam J, Bonnie McFarlane, Oh my God. Carmen Lynch. There's so many comedians. There were, there were so many amazing comedians that were in it. And, um, it, it is just now going to, I think we're going to get it released at the end of this year, which I'm nice. really excited about, but that was the last thing essentially that the Creek did. It was comedy related. And, um, I took like a couple of months to just sort of like clean out 15 years of stuff. I mean, I still have a footlocker that belongs to Nick Turner. That's full of his stuff. Eric Bergstrom came the like last, very last day and like took like a huge, like laundry bag full of stuff and maybe a couple other bags under his other arm, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, there was just, there was so much um, that had to get cleaned out and that I needed to like wait for people to get in town to come and grab, you know, like um, some of the artwork that was hanging up. I wanted to make sure that the comics had an opportunity to come and take it if they wanted it before I took it down here. Um, so. Uh, um, yeah. During, during, during that time. Yeah. I'm no, I, I, during that time, well, I had my, my wife and I. We had our first uh, our first son, so we were kind of you know he's a he's a you know pandemic baby, so we were you know kind of locked up in our uh, you know in our apartment, so we weren't really you know venturing out. But 
Uh, I remember especially like the early months because my family has a butcher shop in, in Spanish Harlem. And one of the workers, one of the, a longtime worker there, uh, he died from COVID. And my older brother got it. He was like fucked up for, I don't know, maybe close to like two months. And then, you know, trying to figure out, well, you know, what, you know, how do you do, you know, can you remain open? Will you be allowed to, re to be, re to remain open? How many people will be allowed in? And then with you guys too, like you having, you know, the restaurant, did you end up um, building any like outdoor seating? Like, did you, did you guys do that? Well, um, I'm not a builder by trade. Um, okay. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, you told about this show with a giant vagina and a giant <laughs> cock. I, I think you guys could have handled it. I, uh, I, uh, I didn't, there were a couple of reasons. Um, one of which was that the precinct came and personally asked me not to, because I could have legally, but we were at that sort of turnaround at the bottom of the bridge. Okay. They, they, they basically were like, just please don't. And I just didn't know. I like, I felt I was on the community board. Like I felt like, you know what I mean? Like, and I also felt like how many seats, like I could have, if I, if I ate up that whole block, it would make a difference. Mm -hmm. Then I could have, I could have probably turned it around. But if I ate up that whole block, somebody would have gotten run over. Uh, so uh. I don't know. Like, I just, I, 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 I feel like, I feel like we were already in such a financial position that digging out of it would have just been, it would have just been impossible and when they opened it i opened up the restaurants to 25 percent seating I, my place only sit only seats 18 so like doing the math, yeah. that's, that's just silly it's like mm -hmm. you know what i mean it's just it's just just a, it, and well and how they came up with these numbers too you know these fucking arbitrary numbers i went from you know 25 and then i remember at one time it was it was 50 percent, and then before that you were dealing with you had to have food but it couldn't be like wings weren't considered food to have with drink. And yeah, it was just really, uh, my, my heart goes out to, you know, you and other business owners who were even just trying to stay afloat and then like navigate all those, you know, new rules too. True. And it was also just like really just hard to like have morale, you know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah. It takes like a whole heart to do something like that. And it just was a lot of, a lot of gut punches over and over again, just sort of making it clear that like, just was kind of a hostile environment all of a sudden, you know? Yeah. And, then, and also, I mean, one of the first things that I did was I, I became a COVID compliance officer for the Screen Actors Guild. Like I took it extremely seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't believe that, you know, uh, we, I believe that we did everything that we did with an abundance of caution and made sure that, that that safety measures were in place to ensure that, you know, people stayed as, as safe as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When we, um, at the beginning of 2021, I was, uh, I shot a series of, um, of, of sketches, sketch comedy. And, uh, one of the things that I, that I had, um, one of the people that I hired was a COVID officer. Um, you know, and, sure. uh, then it, it was obviously the, f it was the first time I'd ever had an experience with that. And these were small shoots, you know, but, um, the, and also like the amount of money that it added to the budget, you know, just having that officer because everyone needs the, you know, they, uh, you have the officer and then you have everybody who has to get tested, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm asking actors like, you know, by, uh, what was it? 48 hours before, you know, to, you know, schlep all the way to wherever the hell, was available for testing and all that. It was, 
Yeah, you're already trying to do when you're doing something creative. Um, there's already that pressure of performing, and then you have it where there's that creative element, but then also livelihood, <laughs> and then yeah. this on top of that. You know? And you know, just from a practical point of view, from a production standpoint, that's thirty percent of your budget. The yeah. pandemic was eating up thirty percent of your budget if you had the audacity to try and film anything during the during the pandemic. Yeah, and there was no way around it. Yeah. And then I, you know, I can imagine another, you know, hit to morale, um, uh, something that, that, that I saw happening was it seemed like anybody who was trying to do their best to remain afloat or to, you know, entertain or to have a, you know, like, like you guys were doing, uh, then you have people come out like, Oh my God, you're, you're going to kill people. You're going to get people sick. I mean, well, you're like trying your best. You know, you know? I didn't get any of that. You didn't get that? Good. I did was outside. You know, I, I closed the doors in proper fashion when I was told to. Um, and um, I would say maybe did one thing that I probably shouldn't have done, but it was super fun. And I don't regret it that much because nothing bad happened. But I would have been really bad, upset if something bad had happened. Do you want to talk, do you want to talk about that? We did like an after party. We probably shouldn't have. Ah, okay. It was so much fun, but we probably shouldn't have done it. <laughs> I definitely felt like a super spreader, but nobody like came back to us saying that they got it. So I think we're, we're all right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, I mean, honestly, like for the, I mean, for the most part, we really did sort of like follow the letter of the law and, and there was no way to keep the business afloat doing that. I mean, there were some people who were, who were, remaining open, um, which I mean, I didn't, I didn't think was a great idea. I didn't stay open, but I'm also, you know, the majority of the comics that hang out at the Creek, you know, like downstairs in a basement, like it just doesn't feel mm -hmm. like not good airflow. Like there's maybe there's mm -hmm. other places that had better airflow that maybe would have felt more comfortable, but my, the, my place wouldn't have been a, a place that would have been a candidate for that. I just, mm -hmm. I just, I, I wouldn't have ever been comfortable because too many, and also too many of my employees and too many of my, too many of the regular comics, um, live with elderly grandparents and stuff like that. That just, that would have never flown. That would have never been all right with me. Yeah. Are they all trying to get sitcoms based on that? Like, look, I, you know, I'm a comic. I live with my elderly grandparent. It's going to be hilarious. Uh, no, not that I've heard of. Not okay. That was that was my attempt to maybe you uh, should write that down. Do a little I, maybe I should, in general. I have a notepad right here. There I'm you go. Um, I, I could feel you talking about like that that after party. You know, whatever you know, regrets. But you know, there's definitely a, a time. I, I remember my wife. Uh, you know, basically being like locked up, and um, unless we were you know doing walks around the neighborhood, and then there was a restaurant. Uh, we lived in Brooklyn Heights, so on Atlantic Avenue, there's a restaurant called Chez Moi, and uh, it's a nice, nice French place. And they had outdoor seating, and we got really excited because we were finally going out. And we're sitting outside, and like five minutes into it, it starts pouring rain. And then, you know, the the poor manager, he like this is this is like one of the few days where he's actually had people, you people, know. Yeah. And then he runs and and he goes and he gets um, you know, like this uh. God, what is it like a tent, you know, sort of thing, like a pop-up thing. So I'm helping him open, you know, this thing and, and pop it up. And we're all sort of like, it's not completely open. And like, there's our food and it's kind of, our food's kind of getting rained on and he's so apologetic. And we're like, no, no, this is the best thing that's happened to us in like months. <laughs> it was, we were so happy to be, we were so happy to be out and, and also, you know, happy to, 
I mean, I don't know, it help a little bit, you know, like, you sure. know, uh, you know, so my yeah. experience was a little different just because I still had to go to restaurant Depot and I still had to mm, like, right. there were still people that I would go and check on that like we, you know, like there was, there were things that I had to do all the time. So I never really felt like I was cooped up. Plus I lived directly above the venue. So I had the whole venue to run around in and do stuff in. So I just, I never really, I didn't feel that. I, I felt like um, it was kind of amazing that we could drink in the streets and that uh, there was nobody on the road. You know what I mean? Like I could drive wherever I wanted to at any time of the day. There's no rush hour. It was amazing. What, so, what, what currently takes, uh, would take us like 45 minutes to 50 minutes to go visit my parents. We were there. Like, I think it was one time we were, under, we were there in under 20 minutes. Yeah, of course. And, I mean, it's just, it was absolutely, it was insane. I mean, I just, I remember like just driving to times square parking essentially wherever I wanted, just wandering around with an open bottle of champagne, drinking and like looking around and like going like, I can't believe this place is empty. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, and you think like, this is great. This is amazing. Oh, but the price you have to pay for it. Like, oh, yeah, like man. one day you want that. You don't exactly. want that a year. You know what I mean? <laughs> hey, exactly. That's cool. You go have your little vanilla sky moment and then you move on. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. Oh, what, what's it? What's Cameron? Uh, I never saw the movie, but uh, uh, but I remember the line Cameron Cameron Crew said, I, "I swallowed your cum" or something like that. Cameron uh, to maybe I'm not. You guys fact check me on that, but I'm pretty sure Cameron, she said. Yes, is, was she was she the girl in it? I, I think so. Yeah, she was the. Uh, yeah, I picture Selma Hayek, or maybe she was in the Spanish version of it. I'm really just oh. referencing the very opening part of the thing where he's driving through Times Square and it's empty. Empty. That's got better. it yeah got it yeah i don't really know who swallows the cum in that relationship i mean i think i think i think it should be 50 50 i mean that, that's that that's where i'm on that we've been sharing and that's nice thank you thank you um speaking of sharing can you share with us oh uh so uh what so uh so you moved to austin uh, uh -huh. you know what prompted you know austin you know out of you know all the other places again i kind of have an idea but um just somebody called me and asked me if I wanted to. And I was like, sure, if you guys can figure out a way to make it work. And uh, in the meantime, I talked to a handful of my friends. Uh, the most passionate one, the one who talked me into it the hardest, who believed in his heart that it was absolutely the right move, uh, would be Tim Dillon, who uh, is no longer there. I adore him. And I think he lasted five weeks after I moved. <laughs> Skadoodled. Um, I mean, he's been back a ton since and he has uh, an awful lot to say about this town. Um, and uh, it, I think one of the last texts that he sent me was, uh, you're too cultured to be there. Get out, get out while you can run. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we're both pretty upset about the restaurant scene. I'll be honest with you, mostly being that it's closed at like nine to 10 PM. So it's very difficult to have like an eating experience, like after a show, oh, which, wow. is, which, which makes it hard for a lot of comics. Like it just makes it like your only options are a sparse handful of food trucks and like maybe like a diner and like, you know what I mean? So yeah, like not to speak for him, but like, I, I kind of understand how it could be difficult to be a performer. <laughs> given that that's the circumstance yeah well I, i've been to austin i think once or twice and i uh there's a restaurant red ash have you ever heard of red ash oh, it's yeah. like um 
I really enjoyed it. I was really blown away. On his podcast a lot. So oh, really? difficult to get a, uh, a reservation now, like at a regular time anyway. Mm-hmm. So what I usually do is I just hold one every month and then I'll give it up or I'll give it over to, I'll have somebody like check in as me and just take it over because it's excellent. I haven't been there. I've only gotten um, crew to t- like a, I've gotten like um, a couple of like odd, like appetizer items and mm-hmm. made like plates, like platters for comics um, and so like I've had like leftovers from that before, but I've never actually eaten their food food. Yeah. I was really, I was really blown away because, you know, like you, you grow up in New York and, you know, you kind of have this, uh, I don't know, snooty attitude. Like, you know, you got, you and Tim were talking about like the food scene. Um, but then, you know, I started realizing I'm like, if I count the amount, like the restaurants that I would go to regularly in New York, not that many really. See, you know? I ran a restaurant association in Long Island City and restaurants were my jam. So I had restaurants in every neighborhood. I had restaurants wow. in New York is the kind of place where like, I felt like I was doing everybody a disservice by eating at home. I would always mm. feel like it was better for me to go out. I'm helping small businesses. I also was, was almost all of your options in New York. Um, if you're really like paying attention and trying can really be mom and pop places. Right. And that's not necessarily the case in a lot of towns. So like, it's not necessarily as much fun to eat through a town the way that it is in New York. You know what I mean? Um, New York is just one of those cities that like, yeah, I mean like there's, if you can get good Chinese food at three o'clock in the morning, why wouldn't you love it there? You know what I mean? You know, I never got good Chinese food at three in the morning in New York, though. I think really? I got. Yeah, I think I, I went. Uh, we went to one place in, in Chinatown and we had like, you know, they were known for like their duck, their Peking duck. And, you know, I had the shits, gave me the shits. Normally I have a, I have a tough stomach. So this isn't your fault for bringing that memory up in my. Well, I mean, I feel like that's also just like one meal. You know, and I think that a lot of people are like, oh, I had the shits and I'm blaming the food. And it's like, really, asshole, it's not the 10 fucking shots of whiskey you had and the pacers <laughs> that you were shoving down your dumb fat face. OK, it's the duck. You're, you're like, you're like, maybe, like maybe really? Duck? I don't know. I don't know you. Maybe it was, but maybe it was also a bottle and a half of sake. I have no idea. Or, or it's like, really, Lou, that's why you're racist against Chinese people because of one bad that duck, one meal. One bad duck. Good. That's it. Come on. General so would be so disappointed in you. So disappointed. Uh, there's a good documentary on the uh, the origin of of General So, and uh, I think Netflix probably like that. I recommend it if you're if you're not doing anything tonight. Um, <laughs> or do you? Um, so, are you? What is it like? You know, uh, you know, uh, you know, owning and you know being the booker at a club. Uh, I mean, are you there every night? Like, what are your hours like? Um. Well. It's weird because potentially it's all the hours and then it can be like a little bit more chill. Um, There are times when I don't necessarily go into the club, but I'm still working a full day's worth of work in my home, just sort of organizing things and booking hotels and trying to set up stuff and getting on the phone and talking to people and reminding them that there's a club out there in Austin that's looking for people and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Um, and then on top of that, like making sure our paperwork is straight and I handle like the inspections and stuff like that. So like, and we just went through another round of those. 
Um, so, I mean, it just, it var it really varies. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, definitely being there at night and trying to make sure that um, I'm watching new talent as well as making sure that the headliners are taken care of and um, also giving new talent sort of space to like get better and not like standing there like that watching them going like oh, oh, oh. Mm. you know what I mean um, so uh, and we still do a, a handful of open mics not nearly as many as we used to do at the creek in New York but we do about um, we try to do at least one a day and uh, we have a couple of other shows that are not open mics, but they have improvisational elements. So people are at least sort of doing stuff that's a little bit off the cuff. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you know, it's like, you know, getting to know the, the local comedy scene and trying to figure out what they're going to think is funny and trying to find the right comics that are going to be the right fit and just continuing to try and work with the funniest of my friends and hopefully uh getting to work with more and more of them as time goes on you know yeah well yeah i was i was gonna ask you about that you know uh sort of the, the relationship between uh local comedians and obviously the local uh you know audience and then sort of uh uh you know out of state comedians who've you know moved there who emigrated to you know to austin and you know is there um I don't know. I, it seems like, like back in, you know, I say like, like the eighties, uh, there was like a, you could, there was like a big difference between like, like the Texas comedy scene versus like the LA comedy scene, like, you know, kind of, you know, uh, road comics, you know, versus, you know, people like, uh, you know, kind of, like, uh, you know, state put in you know, like the, the, the major cities have, have things gone like a little bit more, you know, homogenized, you know, like, oh, is, is that what you're seeing or? Um, I mean, there's a handful more LA comics floating around, um, but I wouldn't say that they're like pushing their culture because that culture is more industry driven. You know what I mean? Oh, okay. I, th I think that that change happens when you've got a bunch of people in the room that could always maybe be a suit that could make or break your career. So you're constantly trying to do a certain level of comedy and it kind of like, it, that's when it sort of becomes homogenized. I think is what you're saying but i think that's really more a result of the of the um of of industry influence and there's not enough industry for that to be a thing here having said that it's not necessarily a bad thing if industry does come because then it will be a little bit more sort of like relevant on the scale of you know la and new york versus any other place you know what i mean yeah because you know arguably there's also chicago there's also atlanta right. there's Denver, there's, you know what I mean? There's, there's an awful lot of scenes out there that aren't New York and LA. Yeah. Uh, before we started recording, um, uh, when you told me that you were also the booker, I was like, oh my God, that must be such a pain in the ass. Do you, do you find that like being both an owner and a booker? Because I, I have a friend of mine, I'm friends with uh, Noam uh, Dorman from uh, from the Comedy Cellar. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, I've known Noam, I don't know how many years we're, we're going on now. Okay. And I've, I've ne I know that a lot of people ask him or you like try to bug him for an opportunity, you know, to like get on that stage. And I just feel, I, I feel weird if I were to ask him, even though we're, we're friends, you know, to do that. Like, you know, does that put you in a, in a, I don't know. Do you ever feel like you're put in a strange place? Like comedians asking you for, um, for spots and all that. I mean, yeah, I, they, yeah. I mean, I suppose they do, but I don't, People don't get particularly demanding or they're not mean about it or anything. You mm -hmm. know, 
and, it, and I don't think that I try to be really honest, you know, with my feedback. If I say no to somebody, I like for them to, especially sort of like on the local scene, like I like for them to understand why. Um, a lot of times when people hit me up for headlining gigs, it's not a no, it's just no answer because I'm trying to figure out where I can fit everybody in, you know what I mean? Right. And, um, and also, you know, trying to make sure that I'm booking, well, you know what I mean? Trying yeah. to make booking the right like flow of people or whatever. So it's like, I got to catch you on the next, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's hard. Sometimes there's miscommunication. People take it personally, which makes me sad sometimes, but it, I don't, I don't really ever mean it personally. You know, it just feels personal because it's your art. So of course it's personal. It's like, what do you, you know what I mean? But it, for the most part, if it's younger comics that are growing, they know that they're going to have a chance to grow with me, that it's not that I'm going to, judge them on the comedy that they did year one for the rest of their lives mm -hmm. right and that they have permission to do bad comedy in front of me before they do good comedy in front of me and i'm not going to hold on to that bad comedy you know mm -hmm. that's really kind of the job of the booker i think in a way i don't know well it sounds cool it sounds like you're you know you you've established kind of like a, an incubator there where people can grow as you know as comedians but I don't go out of my way to be like super approachable or anything. You know what I mean? Like if you, <laughs> like you have to like, it has to take a while for you to like feel comfortable. Yeah. Like approach me and stuff. I'm sorry to hear that no one gets bugged so much. Like that's, that's no, I, I don't, like I don't, I, I don't know how much he gets bugged, but I know some people personally who, you know, have like, he's done a favor for, and they, and they're like, you know, they, they're like, they want to ask him what's, what's happening. And, you know, and, and he's a uh, gnome is a very generous guy, very, uh, very good dude. And I, 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 I don't, I, yeah. And so I, I think, you know, it's sometimes it's, you know, putting somebody in that position where it's like, okay, you know, we'll get you up on, you know, we'll give you a chance, but I can't promise you anything. And I think sometimes people think that, that, you know, they might be entitled to something. But I honestly, like, I, I think that I, I have to sort of, like, I think that the other side of it's a little bit more of a challenge is sort of like trying to deal with like the, uh, deal with isn't the right word, but like trying to make sure that like keep that all of the agents are happy that I'm not like booking too many of one, any, like I'm learning that part of it. Oh, okay. That's kind of like a new thing for me. I don't know. <laughs> this mm -hmm. has been a, this has been a completely different kind of year because New York uh, Creek was very, very different. We didn't have headliners. We didn't have, uh, we barely even charged for shows and, uh, you know, the comedians knew that having a show that didn't have an audience wasn't going to mean that their show had to end. And um, there were some comics who had shows for four years who only had one dear man that used to come to every single one of them. He's a very sweet boy. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, at the end of the day, I just, I, I feel like, uh, I feel like that is sort of like the, the, the greatest platform to sort of be able to um, figure out your comedy. Unfortunately, it's also um, very difficult to keep a business like that going. Right. So, uh, you know, it was uh, not, I think, any huge surprise when the Creek wasn't able to make it through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think I told you, I'm, I'm, I wrote a, uh, I wrote a book. It's been scrolling under here. I'm always, always pr promoting this book. Uh, it's coming out in September. Uh, and it's sort of like my look back at, you know, 20 years of, of, of doing comedy. And, um, I did most of my stuff at, 
at the UCB theater. Um, and I think sort of the environment that you described it, you know, the, the early, you know, Creek in the cave was a very similar, uh, to when I was coming up at the UCB where it was sort of like, you know, you have stage time, you're not guaranteed necessarily an audience, but you are given an incredible amount of, you know, uh, license to try stuff and to see what, you know, what works right. and, and what doesn't. I think that's really, uh, you know, no matter what year in comedy you're in, I think that's important, but especially as a, as a young comedian, you know, coming okay. up. Um, and I'm, I'm really fortunate that, you know, places like, you know, the UCB and, and the Creek in the Cave were, you know, were around. And I know a lot of uh, other comedians are too, for sure. Yeah. So I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to, to, to bring it down. What, what else did I want to ask? Oh, um, why don't we talk? Um, uh, so you brought up, uh, the special that you guys shot at the Creek in the cave, the last, you know, sort of like the, the last hurrah there in New York. Um, well, it wasn't actually filmed at the Creek. It was filmed at this place called cookout, which was this oh, okay. based in Brooklyn, um, which has now been taken over by a different company. I don't remember what they're called now. Um, but, uh, but yeah, <clears throat> but we filmed it. It was an, it had to be a completely outdoor shoot and we had to have a space that had enough room for video village and an audience of a hundred people, but distanced. So, cool. yeah. And, uh, uh, any plans for releasing that? So, yeah. yeah, it should be at the end of this year. Nice. Do you have a, a is it going to be on a platform or I, they're going to tell me next month? I, I, I know that it's been like option and then now okay. finishing up the credits and then it's going to go. So, I wish I could tell you right now, but I won't know for another probably four weeks or so. Okay. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, when I, like, it, it's funny when I, when I turn on like, um, you know, on YouTube, well, it's mostly on YouTube. I get like ads for like comedy central and I'm like, Oh, that person used to do my open mic in LA or, Oh, I, I booked that, you know, that, that person on my, on, on my show. Um, are, are there any like, you know, sort of comedians that, are you know kind of under the radar right now that you're really excited about anybody oh yeah i, I, I don't mean to, i don't mean to put you on the spot i put you on the spot because if you don't name the people then they're gonna be like what the fuck Rebecca? yeah there's a ton that i'm really excited about i'm very excited about the austin comedy scene in general that was a very smart very smart play yeah. very very smart play to do it um well rebecca i, I want to you know thank you so much for uh you know for making time uh for joining me That's and uh you know, um, I wish you the best and, and thank you for continuing to do what you're doing for comedy and for uh, humanity. Maybe, maybe a little bit. A little yeah, bit. I'll take it. I really will. Um, also, uh, I would like to say keep an eye out for Skankfest New York 2024. We're oh, very shit. excited uh, to be coming back. And um, and we've got Vegas coming up in October. So those are um going to be a couple of amazing events that are coming down the pike. Fantastic. Thank you so much for listening. And again, please order my book. That joke isn't funny anymore on the death and rebirth of comedy. Just follow the link in the description or head over to Amazon and search for Lou Perez. That joke isn't funny anymore. And please subscribe to my podcast. Leave a five-star review. Why not? Sign up for my newsletter at theluperez.com. And if you want other ways to support my work, you can join theluperez.locals.com. And of course, be sure to support my sponsors, palomaverdecbd.com. Use promo code LU for 25% off purchases over $75 and Black Organic Cold Brew, B-L-V-C-K-B-R-E-W.com. 
Use promo code Lou for free shipping. Thank you.